0: I was watching a trailer to an upcoming documentary yesterday, and um, it was—it's on the educational system in America, and so obviously it—it kind of goes to the the worst side of it. Everything always has good sides and bad sides, but this documentary obviously goes to the worst sides. But in one part of the documentary, it was talking about the rankings uh, internationally, and it said, you know, uh, American kids right now are like 24th in science um, worldwide and like 21st in math worldwide. And then they kind of, you know, like documentaries do, did a, a big kind of play on the emotions and, and switched it and said, but, you know, there's good news. We're number one in the world in something. And, you know, there's kind of this build up, and they show a guy, uh, like a high school kid, going off a ramp into a building and totally biffing it and then falling three stories. And the punchline is, we're number one in the world in uh, self-confidence. <laughs> and, uh, and... <laughs> Uh, the reason we're singing hymns kind of all summer, um, and the reason hymns and originals we're going to start writing a bunch of originals here at Antioch, but hymns and originals. And, and the reason we're doing this series that we're doing at Antioch, because we can kind of do the same thing to ourselves in Christianity. Uh, we can be low on God, low on theology, low on truth, low on, um, sometimes honesty low on a lot of things, but, but really high on spirituality or self-confidence or um, feeling like we're great. We're kind of habituated that way, trained that way. And so what we're trying to do is really get back to the heart of things, pare it down, and, and just see where it's really supposed to be at. And so that's kind of what this series is about. I want to put a verse on the screen and read it, but it's in 2 Corinthians. And We kind of ended last week. We did series on giving your life away. And this series is called After You Believe. It's a series on discipleship, on spiritual growth. And we ended last week with a verse from second or two weeks ago. I'm sorry. Last week we had a guest speaker. But two weeks ago, we ended with a verse from second Corinthians in chapter four. And uh, it should be on the screen. There we go. Chapter four, verse 16 and on. It says this, therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And it's going to go on. It says, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. It's really interesting. I mean, this is a side note, but uh, there's three things you can know when you're trying to get somewhere. Okay? You can know the destination. If you don't know the destination, you can know who or what you're following. right? So I, I know the way to wherever, or I don't know the way to wherever, but I know that I'm following Brandon, who's in the car in front of me, okay? or the Google Maps on my iPhone. Or, um, guys don't know this one, girls do, you can know that you don't know which means I'm lost, okay? So you can know where you're going, you can know how you're getting there or who you're following, or you can know that I'm lost, okay? The, the thing of faith is, is these two. Um, it's kind of this dynamic thing, but it's knowing who we're following. It's like uh, the things that I see mislead me, but I know I'm going somewhere that I can't really, I get a vague sense of it, and I'm going to get there by following God, and so I put my faith in him, I close my eyes, and I walk not by sight, but by faith. Okay, This verse is really interesting, though. I want you to notice a couple things. There's two poles. One says this, this slight momentary affliction. Affliction is a pretty crazy word. I see that word a lot in, like, fighting. <laughs> which kind of gives away a little bit of, of its meaning. It's pain. Okay, Affliction means pain, and so this, this affliction... And then it goes on, as preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That's pretty good. Okay. So you have these two poles, you have pain and you have some kind of a pleasure, some kind of a good thing over here. And, and we don't really know how to take those in the Christian world. And so you usually see camps grow up around these things. And the pain camp, um, I used to just throw uh, the word Baptist around when I would, do this, but, but I got in trouble with, with people, friends that are Baptists, so um, I won't do that this time, but it's like legalistic camps, <laughs> like tend to grow up around the, the idea of pain and it's heavy and it's downcast and it's burdensome and it's, 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 it's affliction, it's not easy and there's a cost um, and there's truth to that, right? Okay, but this is this one pole and over on this other pole is the, the camp that's, you know, Jesus wants you to be rich camp. Which is really ironic to me. You know, there's a, a whole camp that thinks Jesus wants you to be rich. And, and it's, the, it's the, what's called the prosperity gospel. And it's, you know, just uh, come to Jesus and he's going to make everything uh, really good for you. And the guys that tell you this message usually are wearing $10,000 suits. And, you know, have a Mercedes Benz in the garage and stuff like that. But it's just, it's all happy. And it's all pleasure. And it's all good. And, you know, there is no affliction. Jesus wouldn't want you to suffer Um, it's prosperity gospel. And there's these two poles, and we kind of don't know what to do with them, so we kind of camp around one or the other. But the funny thing is, is they're both there. They're both there. And and how does that work, right? This is just counterintuitive. There's another place, if uh, you want to turn to it, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, we see... None other than Jesus kind of drawing out this, this paradox. And it's the Beatitudes. And we heard about the Beatitudes last week from Luke Kendricks, uh, coming and speaking with us. And the Beatitudes are paradoxical statements. They, they're pretty familiar to us. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And it goes on and says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The the word beatitude doesn't show up there, but it's the title for it. How do we get that as the title? Well, it comes from the Latin beatis, which in the Middle Ages, um, the Bible was Latin. Everyone kind of did ecclesiastical Latin, church Latin. And and beatis means supremely happy, supremely happy. The Greek here, the actual Greek that it was written in, um, that Matthew would have written in, the word here for blessed is makarios, which means happy. So if we were kind of You know The Bible translations are an interesting thing. We've kind of just picked up on King James English. The the passages that are so symbolic and sacred to the church uh, never really get updated in, in newer translations or English because it would be changing something that's really at the heart of the church. And so you kind of begin to keep the older language with really famous passages. In this passage, it would be really weird for people to say, "'Happy are the poor in spirit.'" Happy are those who mourn. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. So we kind of leave it with what feels more like religious and spiritual and stained glass and the word we, we use, even though we don't really bring it in in English these days, is blessed. But it's makarios, it's, it's Latin, it's happy. It's, makarios is Greek, but even the Latin is supremely happy and that's what the Beatitudes say. That's really paradoxical, isn't it? Like, happy are the unhappy is kind of like what Jesus is saying, you know? And we we kind of struggle with this because the description of what Jesus is saying feels like affliction, and it feels like difficulty, and it feels like trial. And yet over on this side, he's saying, happy. Now, surely Jesus doesn't mean, when he says happy here, he doesn't mean pleasure. Because it really would be illogical for Jesus to say, those who mourn, you know, those who mourn are in pleasure. I mean, it'd be a category fallacy. Like mourning is an emotion. It is, it is something you're doing where the emotion is pain. And so it'd be illogical for Jesus to say, um, that emotion that is pain is happy. And it's like, no, it's pain. Okay, so certainly Jesus isn't saying like You're experiencing pleasure here, so what does he mean by saying happy are? And what we see, and we've we've traced this out before, but we need to do it again. What we see here is that something's changed. You've got pleasure over here. Okay, and we we, we understand that one. It's an emotion. It's a feeling. It's temporary. It's uh, a lot of times external stuff is going on. And, and that's pleasure it's it's really simple, we understand it. Historically, there was another word over here, and the word was happiness that could have elements of pleasure to it, but it was a deeper state of being that it was it was the thing we all aimed towards, which was lasting. it was a, a state of being. it was the thing that when everything's working right. Um, arises in one's life, and so in, in in ancient ethics, they actually, contrary to popular ethics these days, they actually said you have to have virtue in order to have happiness. Today we think virtue is the opposite of happiness because virtue means denying yourself pleasure sometimes, right? But the ancients always said, virtue is about so constituting and building yourself that you operate the way you were designed, which brings about the greatest state of being, which is the greatest happiness. And so it was uh, the flourishing soul and the good, the true and the beautiful. And it it was what was produced when everything was working right. It was opposite, not opposite, but it was totally different in some sense than pleasure. Does that make, you guys get that? When Thomas Jefferson penned the the Declaration of Independence and said, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, this is what he meant. He meant that the monarchy, that the foreign rulers, that politics shouldn't be able to come into your life and get in the way of you choosing and developing and aiming your life such that you would have the greatest amount of happiness um, through education, through self-determination, through other things like that. That's what he meant. Now when we say it, it's like, you can't tell me I can't do what makes me feel good right now. Like, we've, we've totally changed what that phrase, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, means. Okay, this was the ancients' view of happiness. This was Jesus' use of happiness in the Beatitudes. Now what happened is, we took, and this happens with language, right? We took happiness that meant more this, and we moved it over here, And made it synonymous with pleasure. Now this is a real conundrum for Christians. Because the bad people are over here. And now they're using the word happiness to justify their bad things. So we can't use happiness because it would mix us up in company with the bad people. So let's get rid of the word happiness... And replace it with joy. That'll work. Um, You know, James says that, doesn't he? Consider your trials pure joy. And so James knew that there was a better word than happiness. And so let's use the word joy. Get rid of happiness. So now whenever we hear the word happiness, it's like, oh, bad people. Or if we want to use the word happiness, we kind of feel like doing something wrong. Christians aren't supposed to be happy. And we come more and more over to this camp. The pain camp the affliction camp and we begin to have in our psyche as Christians this idea or this notion that God wouldn't want us to be happy God would want us to be miserable and then we in our verse all we end up with is affliction and we don't understand that affliction is a part of something that leads somewhere that all the times pain is talked about, or suffering is talked about, or difficulty is talked about, or trial is talked about, that it is a means, or a part of the process, or just a necessary evil in some sense that's aimed at something good. So the lack of pleasure in Scripture is, is not an end in itself that we're just going to deny self or endure pain for pain's sake. There's a, a whole group of people, and you know, hundreds of years after Christ, called ascetics. And ascetics or asceticism is this idea that you're going to inflict pain. It's like religious masochism, or I don't know, spiritual masochism. It's like inflicting pain on yourself to to elevate yourself spiritually. And so people would go live in the desert and and live in caves or sit on poles they would get on poles up way above the ground and just sit there under the sun and and literally you know get sunburns that would make their skin boil and things like that and just be exposed and and, and basically inflicting pain for everybody to see of course but but that makes them more spiritual and so denying self as an end in itself is a weird f- weird funky thing the bible always talks about Hey, there's going to be pain, there's going to be affliction, but lift your eyes up because there's something about the state of being. There's something about everything coming together and functioning right with your relationship with God and with an eternal perspective in mind that's good. So Jesus understands this so he can hold in tension this idea of happiness and mourning. Because the mourning is an emotion, and the happiness is a state of being, a proximity, a relationship, a, a trajectory, and it's a big deal that way. And so the funny thing that we have to realize as Christians is words change, but that, that doesn't mean you always get rid of them. And there's certain words that are so foundational that it's really weird if we abandon them. So in the 70s, a whole new definition of love came about in America. You guys get that? You know what I'm saying there? Um, the Britney Spears definition of, of love or whatever. You know, like the pop definition of love. Well, it'd be real easy for us Christians to be like, oh my gosh, that's, that love word is now bad. We should just stop using the word love. We should come up with a different word like I didn't think about this ahead of time, otherwise I would have had a word. Um, Affinity, I don't know. Like, uh, that'll be a great word. We'll just go and like give little hugs and I have an affinity for you and we should affinity one another and and everyone's going to think we're even weirder than we already look to culture. and, And it's like, no, Jesus used the word love. It's like the prime directive. It doesn't matter if somebody else starts using it differently. That just means we have some work to do. You know, and Sunday morning preaching, part of it is not just to make people feel guilty. Part of it is to do some work in in like recalibrating certain things so that our culture in the church is strong enough to hold a a center point or be grounded so that a culture outside of the church doesn't change at all, erode at all. We do work here, okay? So like we would have to do work to the word love. Some people use the word God all the time. I'm going to get rid of the word God. I'm not going to be associated with those people. Like, really? Like, I mean, you can't get rid of that word. So you have to redefine it. You have to put energy into it. You have to put, put sweat equity into defining what you mean. Happiness is one of those words. We can't get rid of it. Um, I can say God wants you to be happy and, and look you right dead in the eye and say uh, he really does. But let me define what happiness means. It doesn't mean God wants you to be rich and wear $10,000 suits and, and tell people to give money to your ministry. It's not prosperity. It's not that kind of happy. It's, it's a different kind of happy that can be held in tension with pain. Okay, do you, does that make sense? I mean, we've covered this ground before, but it's hugely important. We have to be able to say there's a happiness That Jesus is talking about, that the Bible talks about, where we can live in tension with the fact that a lot of what we're called to isn't gonna feel pleasurable. Okay? Now, it comes to where we're going today the virtue of happiness. We are supposed to grow spiritually. The parable, uh, the parable that Jesus gives, the metaphor he gives of, I'm a vine, and you're the branches, and if you're in me, what? You, there's going to be growth and fruit. If you're out of me, it's dead, it's lifeless, nothing happens, nothing changes, nothing's added, it's just... Um, Paul talks about that when we have this relationship with God, there's this fruit of the Spirit, and it's just literally that. The Holy Spirit's dynamic relationship with you... Okay. Grows you spiritually. And the fruit is is spiritual things. Love, joy, peace, patience. It just ticks them off. Okay. Um, There's this idea all throughout scripture that we are supposed to be formed in the likeness of Christ. That we're supposed to be changed, renewed day by day. The inner nature is changing. It's growing. So the idea is That when we are born again or when we are into this relationship with God, that we now have a growth cycle to go into where we go from less mature to more mature. Paul even uses this analogy, or the writer of Hebrews, maybe Paul, but the writer of Hebrews um, says, hey, look, you're on milk. You were on milk, but now you should be on hard, hard food, solid foods, meaty things. What does he mean by that? Other than it's kind of a weird, creepy analogy. It means it's like you were a baby and you shouldn't be a baby anymore, okay? If you became a Christian 10 years ago um, or 20 years ago, okay, or 30-year-olds shouldn't be going around sucking on lollipops all day is the idea, okay? In Christianity, 30-year-olds shouldn't be going around sucking on lollipops all day. It is a byproduct of this relationship with God that when it begins, it will inevitably keep working itself out in changing us, growing us. Okay? So we are to grow spiritually. Okay? How does that happen? Well, here's the real interesting thing about spiritual growth. Okay? Spiritual growth. Has a lot to do with character growth. Do you know that nine-tenths of spirituality is character? It's why our kids learn virtues every week. It's It's forming them internally to be able to have a relationship with God that that's in harmony where they're able to love him and be loved by him and want and desire the right things. You know, a a big part of maturity is desiring the right things and not desiring or being able to walk away or push away desires for the wrong kinds of things. And it doesn't matter how spiritual you want to be, you have to have the capacity to choose good and to turn away from evil. Character is nine-tenths of spirituality. Spirituality. Um, the book we're reading, after you believe, NT Wright says something about what fills you up. Okay, is what will come out of you. What fills you up, what shapes you, what what just forms you, will be the thing that that determines what comes out of you. So, nine tenths of of spiritual growth is character growth. It's a huge thing. Sounds really like. You wish you hadn't come to church this morning. <laughs> character growth. Character growth, like, uh, wow, it's exciting. I feel like I'm a kid again. Um, this doesn't sound like fun at all. That sounds like a long, difficult process. Like, man, that doesn't sound exciting. It doesn't sound pleasurable. It doesn't sound like what I want to hear. But the truth is, is, we, when we come out from underneath our parents and maybe school, most people don't keep growing. Tam and I talk about this all the time. You look at a lot of people in their 60s and 70s, and you're like, "Wow, I still I still see a 13-year-old." Just looks different. Um, I remember this when I worked as a camp counselor at, at Pine Summit in the Big Bear Mountains above LA. I was 25, tw- uh, 23, 24, and 20. I was three different summers, but we'd have these little kindergarten kids like, fighting over stuff, like, no, mine, no, I hate you, like, you know, and all day we'd be playing with these kids, the first couple of weeks of camp was always, like, day camp, little kids, and then they would go home at night, and then I'd be around 25 college kids, and I remember one night sitting there, I was watching it all, and I kind of just, like, squinted my eyes, and all I heard was, like, no, mine, no, I hate you, no, like, and I just was, I laughed, and I was, like, we just become more sophisticated babies, is what, is what happens, like, most people don't really care a lot about character they care about getting their way and if there's not somebody there in your life coaching you and, and affirming you and nurturing you and encouraging you and imploring you to grow and to continue to develop you tend to stop we tend to stop we all know that coaches push us further parents push us further than where kids would go without parents so this morning, the message is all about find a parent. I'm just kidding. Um, but, but we need to have mentors in our life. You know, for me, the best mentors are, are come through writing when you're able to just read and sit there. And the best writers are dead guys. And so that's why we, we push books on you all the time. Like, go get good books And be coached that way. Be encouraged that way. Like continue to strive to be better because spiritual growth involves character growth. And you know what character growth really is? Habit. Spiritual formation is character formation, is habit formation. It's it's really when you break it down to the littlest, bittiest pieces. And it's the disciplines of having character and then growing spiritually. See, Jesus, you look at his habits. Have you ever thought about it that way? Just looked at the habits of Jesus, of how he dealt with people, of how he saw situations, of how he gritted things out, of how when he was so busy with people and wasn't able to find prayer time, he would then take the night. Like, we always talk about be like Jesus, stay up all night and pray. It's like, Jesus didn't stay up all night and pray because staying up all night and praying is like the cool thing. It's that his, his daytimes were so busy. I mean, the habit isn't staying up all night. The habit is no matter what, getting your time with God. So if you don't have a full day, guess what? Do it in the morning, do it at lunchtime, do it wherever. There's another habit. Jesus in his ministry cycle was with people all the time. So much so that when he wanted to be with God, he had to stay up all night. Like, okay, what's this other habit? It's like, you know what? Sometimes when you get to ministry, God will pour you out like a drink offering. He will use you up. I mean, he will flat use you up. There's a habit of being with people too. And there's this habit of going, I'm still going to find my time with God. There's a habit of being a, a, this guy that goes up to sinners like tax collectors and everyone else is like, man, that's a dirty guy, dirty old man. And Jesus is like, look, I want you. Like It's, it's your time. We're, we're going to change you. And uh, then there's times that he's walking with his best friend. His best friend says something, Peter, and he immediately stops and says, absolutely not. Like you right now are not good for me. You're saying everything wrong. And he just talks straight. There's a habit there. There's a time when Jesus heals a guy that's running around a graveyard naked and he's psychotic and he's lost it and And Jesus comes up, heals him, and casts out demons. And the guy's like, ah, sweet. Jesus, I want to follow you. Jesus says, you guys know what he says? No. There's a time when Jesus is healing a bunch of people, goes out that night, prays to God all night, another habit. His disciples find him in the morning. They're like, man, word got out. Like, you healed all those people last night. Now there's a line. It's around the block. Needy people, hurting people. The kinds of people that you came to heal, right? It's the sick that need a doctor. You're the doctor. Let's go heal them, Jesus says. What do you think he said? No. That's that's not right, Jesus. Um, Jesus had a habit of putting God first, and that guy that he healed in the graveyard would have slowed him down. It wasn't the right person for him to be spending his time into or raising up. He cared about him. But that didn't mean he was going to get in his inner circle. Like, I'm struggling with this lately. Like, how do I say no to people and guard my time? Jesus came to heal people, but then he says no. And why? Well, because God is leading me. I stayed up all night praying. Trust me, I know. God is leading me somewhere else. And you know what? That's bigger than this. Um, I was joking with some people this past week. The problem with focus on the family is what it says in the name. Focus on the family. Which is right, nine-tenths of the time, right? But then what happens when you, this situation of like, I'm supposed to be all about my family. It's what I'm here. It's one of my callings. But there's still something bigger than that. See, I'm I'm supposed to be, I'm I'm supposed to have the habit of focusing on God. And there's a time when I have to say no to my family to say yes to God. Jesus even said that. He says, look, if you don't love me more than your mother, your brother, your wives, your children, if you can't separate that out and get what's biggest, that's why when we sing worship songs, it can't all be about our feelings. We have to understand that God is a big God. That's theology. That's truth. That's what anchors us. That's what grounds us. And then we begin to understand like God will have me love my family 99% of the time. But it's because God's having me do it. And you know what? There's going to be a time when God has me do something that my family might not like. But I focus on God. Okay, habits. We could go on and on about that. But habit is is what is underneath character. And character is what is underneath spiritual growth. And this whole thing aims at us changing and becoming more mature. Why Why did I come to talk to you all this morning about becoming more mature? in character, all these boring things. Why why did we come to Antioch this morning and talk about all the boring things? It's really important because that is at the heart of discipleship. There's a movement going these days. It was around when I was in college, but it's really picked up steam. and, And, you know, it says in Peter, like to pastors, it's like, if you preach, like, speak as if speaking the very words of God. I don't, I mean, like that makes me really care, and I lose sleep every Saturday night wrestling and wrestling. If I need to throw away a sermon, I will. You know, take it very serious. I don't. I don't try and act like all old manish with a big beard. That's not what I take it right. But it says, speak as if speaking the very words of God. So, yesterday, randomly, I came across two articles on the internet about the whole topic that this sermon's about: spirituality versus religion. So then, it made me feel like ten times more like I was. God was like doing all this. I'm supposed to speak the very words of God. So I brought a fake beard. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but no, I'm 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 bringing this with a level of conviction that's. It's it's pretty high for me. I don't want guilt. I'm not trying to to come down. I'm just trying to say, look, this stuff matters. Uh, Jesus. I used to use the phrase a lot, you know, those that have ears to hear and eyes to see that, man, sometimes there's things that really matter, but it's like it's missed on a lot of people. And and today I feel like that. I'm like, man, I feel like there's something that matters so much, but it's not sexy and it's going to be missed on a lot of people. And it's like, ah, angst, right? So here's the thing. We want to say today that I'm spiritual, not religious. I'm into spirituality not religion what is that essentially saying see spirituality is a whole lot different than spiritual growth we just took all this time to say like there ought to be a growth thing going on from less maturity to more maturity like character there's this growth okay spirituality only denotes emotion you can get all you want. You can be a big baby and get all you want and still claim that you're spiritual because you can go to a beach and have warm fuzzies. You understand what I'm saying? Or because you see beauty and go, ah, oh, wow, man, that's beauty. I see it, I get it. I'm spiritual. You know what I'm saying? Or because you see a kid in Africa with, with, with an eye, like a, a fly in his eye, and you can tell he's malnourished, and you go, "Oh man, it shouldn't be like this, it shouldn't be like this. Man, this world's messed up, And I'm spiritual. You know, it, it only denotes emotion. So these articles, let me just read you one thing and then share something from the other one. But these articles, the, the secular one on CNN, it was really interesting. They said it's like this whole movement, and there's even like Facebook groups about spiritual, SB, spiritual but NR, but not religious, SBNR. that The millennials, like you know, the generation of the interns here, it's like the absolute big thing. No one will call themselves religious. Um, it's only spiritual. Now, I get that there's a lot of baggage with religion. I always say, yeah, I don't want religion. I want a relationship with God. So there's baggage over here. Get that, okay? But the knee-jerk reaction pendulum sl- swing all the way over to here has got just as many problems. And so somehow we've got to stand in the tension, the, the middle, the balance point, which is usually always where we've got to stand. But listen to this. Um, this is from uh, a Christian guy, David Mills, who's one of the editors for First Things magazine. He says this, Unless, of course, you like that little sense of importance and that comforting sense of social approval, that our society still gives to quote unquote spiritual things though not to religious things it's a warm and fuzzy word it's a cute cuddly bunny word it's not like religion that's a cold and forbidding word it's a screeching preacher with bad breath word the spirit the spirit okay this other entity out there like we're not God right the spirit might turn out to be a Puritan he might say something about taking up a cross. You know what? It, it, it's better to be spiritual without the spirit and hope that no one notices. You know, we can be spiritual as a a way to sanction and justify staying selfish and self-focused. We can, we can remain immature and ill-formed. And use spirituality as justification for that. Does that make sense? Um, so there's this big distinction between the two. And so, one, let me just try and map this out. When we're over here, what we want out of Christianity is a transaction. We want to buy it, we want to purchase it, we want to have a transaction. Um, like we do when we go through a drive through. I'm hungry. I want to not have to get out of my car. I'm going to pay this much money, and I want to get that. Spirituality is that thing that's like, okay, I'm. I got my friends. I got a good Xbox score. Um, I, I like this. I dress well. Whatever. I like my life. I want to. I want to add this cool little dimension. So I'll make a trade, and I'm going to add spirituality. It's a transaction. It's like, okay, Jesus, I'll I'll say that I'm a Christian so that I can get the label. Um, And sweet, now I just added another, like, sticker to the back of my car or another sticker to my guitar case because, like, I'm trying to get a bunch of, like, cool bumper stickers. Or I added another vintage T-shirt to my T-shirt collection. It's like, sweet, can't wait wait to wear that one. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's a transaction. And so over here, we can reduce Christianity to a transaction. Over here, where pain is involved... What we were talking about was transformation. That Christ is coming in and and he's saying, yeah, uh, you need to follow me. Um, And no, you can't bring all that garbage. You got to set that stuff down. And then you got to come follow me. Um, But if you do, I will change you. I will teach you. I will coach you and heal you and love you and forgive you and accept you and I will bring you into sonship. I will take you as an outsider and make you an insider in the family of God. Okay, you got to lay that stuff down and come follow me. You can't buy what I'm offering. You can't reduce it to a transaction. You've got to surrender and be transformed. Um, The gospel... is not about an emotion, but surrender. Now, pastors, churches, evangelists, revivals have really mucked us all up I was having this conversation with my sister. I'm like, man, we're the victims of so much spiritual crap that sometimes it's hard to really understand what the simplicity of the gospel is. Because we've had so many preachers try and pull emotions out of us and timeshare leveraged decisions for Christ out of us um, that we begin to feel like it's emotion that connects us to Christ When the reality is, when Christ made his appeals, there was no arm twisting at all. There's no, there's no salesmanship. He just says, "Look, I I want you, but I want all of you. I want to help you, but I can only help you if you surrender all of it. I I can only heal your heart if I get your whole heart. Um, It's not about you feeling some emotion or even making some decision. It's about a commitment. It's about surrender." It's not about works. It's not about go and do all these crazy spiritual things. And, and I don't ever want people to come to Antioch and feel like you got to jump through all these hoops to win God's approval. You know, if he leads you to do cool things, then you will find joy in those things. Why do you do them? Because, man, I'm the happiest doing these things. I'm so much happier doing these These ministry serving spiritual like hard work things than I am sitting on my hands and doing nothing like I'm not doing it to like become something I'm not doing it because there's guilt I'm not doing it because they keep bossing me around It's like man I want to do this because when I do this stuff God is like working with me and I'm I'm a part of what He's doing and there's so much joy there even if it's difficult That's why I do this stuff But the reality of the gospel the beginning of this relationship with God salvation and it all is just me surrendering Say, I don't want anything that's not you God and the funny thing is that I talked to some people in this church and it's amazing it's so cool it's like this Give Your Life Away series they literally have laid it all before God and then it's kind of like a little bit of a head scratcher it all comes back maybe looks a little bit different and they're like what happened? took everything money, houses, whatever laid it before God and then all of a sudden it bounced back does it mean it's not working? no it means it's working perfectly because God said, give me your life. I'll give it back to you again. You just don't know that when you lay it down. But then when you get it back, you're like, wow, that's amazing. A couple of tweaks here and there. Um, but it feels so different. Because now it's God's. Like me having this is his. That means I get to use this and steward this. It's no longer mine that I'm hiding from God. Surrender changes everything. And, and it's not about an emotion. All right. Spirituality is a feeling. Spiritual growth is something we're called to. Pleasure can be good or it can be bad. Pleasure even in itself isn't bad. There's forbidden fruit, but the whole concept makes sense because we understand what fruit is and that fruit is good. There's good pleasures just like there's bad pleasures. And so we've got to understand that. Like money's not evil. Taking and using money wrongly is evil. I mean, we get that? So certainly there's pleasures, but we we can steer clear of things or we can endure pain because we know there's something greater. There's this amazing weight of glory that waits for us or there's this happiness, this relationship, this proximity that we've got going with God that's so much better than any like temporary cotton candy thing that we could do otherwise. Judas wanted spirituality and a transaction. Simon the Sorcerer in the book of Acts, he saw like the coolness of the spirit and he was like, man, how much does that cost? He wanted a transaction. Uh, The rich young ruler that came up to Jesus wanted a transaction. You know, when we're over here, this is pseudo-Christianity. Over here is Christ likeness and truth. Pseudo just means false, wrong. Turn I've never used this verse ever because it always felt like a real heavy verse. But since I'm like 10 times speaking for God today, I'm just kidding. We're going to use it today. Anyway, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 or 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. We've got pseudo Christianity, which makes Christianity all about us. When we surrender and we realize that we have to grow and change and develop and and allow God to do things in our life, and it might mean pain, but we do it anyways because we understand the greater good. We understand that we want happiness. I've said it before I want you to care so much about your happiness that you'll forego pleasure. What? I want you to care so much about your happiness that you'll forego stupid pleasure. But we've got real Christianity over here, pseudo-Christianity over here, and we're trying to make sense of these things. And we've got a culture and a church that's 25th in math and 24th in science, but number one in feeling good about ourselves. And we feel great because it's all about our emotions and our feelings and our spirituality. And over here, we got like words like character and maturity and... And long-term stuff versus short-term, and it just doesn't feel good, and we don't like that. And so, you know, how do we do that? Man, this feels better. I like this better. This just doesn't feel good. So here's Paul's charge to Timothy, Second Timothy, chapter 4. And Timothy says in, in verse 1, he says, I give you this charge, okay? Timothy, you young pastor that's got a lot to learn still, but but you've got a heart for God, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct if you need to. Rebuke if you need to. Also encourage, lift up, inspire, nurture with great patience and careful instruction. This is really big stuff you're doing here. Verse 3. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Paul is saying there is an appetite in the seat of our belly our emotions. There's an appetite over here that wants cheap affirmation, cheap affirmation that doesn't come with any pain, sweat, or toil. We want an A on the test, but we don't want to do math homework. We want to be good at sports? Like I played volleyball at the interns yesterday. Went home and 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 uh, had the worst self-esteem I've had in like literally two decades. You know, my <laughs> well, two-inch verticals now three-quarter inch. Um, <laughs> It's, yeah. I mean, I want to go out there and, you know, did you guys know that Brandon Reynolds played wide receiver for the um, Beavers or at Oregon State? You see Brandon Reynolds out there moving around, you're just like, wow, like athlete. You know, I want to be that. <laughs> but I, I don't, I mean, I don't set foot in the gym except like once a month with Justin for 20 minutes, you know. I, I want, I want this stuff. I have an appetite for this stuff. I really, I, I really don't want to work for it. I really don't want the true thing. I just want you to give me all this stuff because I am a big baby inside. And I want want to, I'm 37 and I just want to eat lollipops and cotton candy and ketchup straight from the bottle. (laughs) Do you know that that's at the heart of all of us? If I said to you right now, Close your eyes. Close your eyes. Let's just do this. Close your eyes. I want you to picture like door number one, you know, like the, that old TV game show, you know, where there's this big door number one. You can't see what's behind it. And I'm this TV game show host guy, and, and I'm literally saying to you, I can show you God's plan for you behind door number one. How amazing is that? God's plan for your life. I could show it to you, but it's not going to be what you would have created. And it probably won't be easy or comfortable might actually feel like pain. might have to give up a lot of things you like to get it. Do you, do you sense the tension in your belly, the sea of your emotions there in your gut, of saying, like, I don't know that I really want to see what's behind door number one? Do you, guys, do you guys sense that tension? If you're really closing your eyes and really imagining this, you're going to sense that tension. And guess what I just showed you? is where the struggle for faith resides. You see, cheap faith is just believing that there is some God up there in heaven. That has nothing to do with any of this. It's just like checking a checkbox, you know? Are you Caucasian, European, Asian, or whatever on some, like, uh, stupid survey or, you know, whatever, demographic survey? I'm European. Sweet. Is there a God? Yeah. It's not faith. See, faith is that little tension you felt right there of saying, Do I really want to know the truth? Am I really willing to trust God? Would I really let go of things if I knew what God wanted me to let go of and what He wanted me to do? Am I really willing to surrender? Do I really believe God is good? And that this plan, although difficult, is really what I want deep down. That's See, that's the tension of faith. Um, where were we? Um, does anyone remember where we were before I went on that analogy? Oh, itching ears. So, So Paul is saying to young Timothy, he's like, man, there's going to be people and you are charged with trying to Fan into flame faith, little, little, little sparks of faith that people have and it's delicate. And you're supposed to fan and, and fuel that fire that they can grow and mature and become these amazing, radical, change the world for God people. You're, you're, I'm charging you to do this. And you've got to have the right kind of habits, Timothy. You've got to rebuke some people, encourage some people, but you've got to have the right kind of habits. And guess what? Nobody's going to like you. You're going to be like really uncool dude because everything you're bringing is, is difficult. And it's not, it's not what the people of the age and pop culture are really hungry for. You have to take words like religion and try and make them cool again. You have to take t- t- like institutions like church. Do you know that church is so deep of an institution it's going to outlive marriage? Jesus said in, in heaven there's no marrying or being given in marriage. Okay? But the church is the bride of Christ. It's an institution deeper than marriage. I, Timothy, you've got to take like, uncool things like church and try and make them cool again. You know, and, and it's like, how do you do that if you only have a three-quarter inch vertical and you're not an athlete? You know, I got no cool chips and, and I got to make something cool. It's like the only way that's going to happen is if God shows up and God does a work in this church, if the Holy Spirit's living here. We don't we want to entertain. We want God to be lifted up on Sunday mornings for people to kind of be able through the haze to see God so that truth will kind of begin to change out you know, I mean, if you see like a cup in the sink and it's got like half milkshake, half water, and it looks like something you'd never want to drink. I only do the dishes like once a year and the only time I ever do it is like milkshake cups. It's, I'm a bad husband. And, and you turn the water on and you put the water on the cup and it goes like this. And slowly the crazy water nasty gets changed out with like good water. And then you feel like you've done the dishes. I do. Um, (laughs) We have to come here on Sunday mornings together, crying out, like imploring each other, imploring God to just cycle out self, baby. God, replace that with like something you can do something with. The funny thing is, is over here, it's a bunch of people that want to feel spiritual like, man, I feel really in my gut when I see the kid in Africa. But the funny thing is is if you're going to do anything meaningful in Africa, you've got to be mature. We spend $2 billion a year in America on short-term missions trips that two weeks painting fences and hammering nails. 1,600,000 Christians going on one-week to two-week trips every year. Feeling spiritual. Does that make short-term trips all bad? No. But man, what percentage of those trips are actually strategic and meaningful and aimed at mature? I want to help those people, not just go experience those people. Do you know if you go to Kenya in the tourism place, you can sign up for what's called slum tourism. Hey, I'm going to go on safari this day. The next day, I want to get in the car and go through the slums outside Nairobi and feel $2 billion a year on short-term trips. We've got to slowly grow and think through things from maturity, and nobody wants the slow. Nobody has the appetite for it. And Paul says to Timothy, hey, this is what's going to happen. The time will come. When men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears, what they have an appetite to hear. Here's the interesting thing when we understand the poles of pain Christianity and like happy Christianity, and we think they're two different things, we come to Christianity and we think we get to sign up for one or the other. I'm glad, like, I'm not Jeremiah. You know, I'm getting thrown in a well and the, the misery prophet. And I'm glad I'm not the guy that like, has to suffer for Jesus. I'm going to choose to be the happy Christian that doesn't have to do the suffering because there's choices, and I'm smarter than the guy that chose that, obviously. There is no choice like that because the happiness and the pain are one and the same. Do you know that all the guys in Scripture that God used had the mixture of both of those, Moses, Joseph. In Hebrews 11, it talks about all these prophets that didn't even get to see the things they were prophesying about. Do you know that we have a different definition of of like what is great and grand and what we behold and what we worship, the idols in this culture? Before TV and the media, it was always character-based. We called those people heroes. There were amazing examples of virtue so we put them up in front of people and we said, be like that guy, be like that girl. And today, with media, because we see people that has nothing to do with anything they've done, we have this word called celebrity. And now it's like, be like that girl, be like that guy. Why? Because everybody sees him. And shouldn't you want that? Wouldn't that bring you pleasure? And we've lost the whole virtue side, the whole grow into mature thing, the whole hero. And in scripture, we see heroes. And we've got to create heroes again for the kids of this church to grow up and become like somebody worth emulating. In Genesis, it's fascinating. So here's the end of Genesis, and we're going to close on this. You know the story, Joseph's thrown in a well. He had a coat of many colors, which meant you're blessed. And his brothers got jealous through him and, well, he gets sold to slavery. One bad thing after another bad thing after another bad thing. But he had character through it all. He could have easily just rejected God. But he had character through this whole thing and submitted and surrendered. And then all of a sudden, the plan begins to unfold. God was working all that time to get him to basically be the, the most powerful man in all of Egypt. Right at a time when they're the only ones with food and money and the whole rest of the world is in a global economic crisis. Seems like God's providing pretty well, right? What's God, where's God in the middle of a famine? Guess what? He's right in the middle of Joseph's life. And Joseph's right in the middle of his will. And his brothers come to him and they say They say they, they throw themselves at his feet and they are like, "We are your slaves. Our bad. You've got a lot of power and food. We're your slaves." And Joseph said to them, "Don't be afraid." am i in the place of god you intended it to harm me but god intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done and save the saving of many lives we always say that phrase what you meant for harm god meant for good but listen to joseph's mindset he's saying god is over the whole thing god superintended this whole thing god is sovereign over everything I'm not the one really calling the shots here. You're looking at my my new robe that God put on me and you're doing the same thing you did with the old robe of many colors. You think the robe matters. And it's not the garment, many colors, dad loves me, robe of power, God loves me. It's not the robe that matters. It's what, what God is doing in that. He's in the position of God. He's the one with power. He's the one with authority. He's the one that is over all of it. And if you want to be in his will, you surrender to that. If you want to be used, it's okay to have a little pain. If you want to become a good athlete, you've got to train. If you want to be happy, do the things that God is calling you to do. Don't try to buy them from God. Am I in the place of God? Oh man, what an amazing thing if we could come every Sunday morning and worship and sing and ask each other and and try and introspect and say, What have I got in the place of God? Is it God? Or is it something other than God, an idol that I've created? If it's really God, then I want to know what's behind door number one because I trust Him. I'm willing to follow. I just want to get on with it. Show me what it is already, I'll do anything. If we really have faith, then God will be in the place of God because we're not going to be trusting in anything else other than God. We don't want anything else other than God. That's worship. That's what we try and elevate ourselves to every Sunday. Father, um, it is so hard for us to let you be you. You are God. We are not. It's your kingdom that we work for. It's not your kingdom that works for us. You do want us to be happiness, uh, to be happy. The desires that you try and just grow in us, godly desires, Christ-like desires. And Father, we just pray that you would change out the dirty water, um, grow us up. Take the evil desires, take the bad desires, take temptations. Let us realize that gratifying those is is just remaining a child. Let us put childish things away. Father, we just pray this in Christ's name, amen.